What's the only weekly wrap-up of the top compliance and ethics stories? It is This Week in FCPA with Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, and Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor. Each week, Tom and Jay highlight 10 stories which caught their collective eye, talk about sports and movies, highlight top podcasts, and preview their upcoming events. Join This Week in FCPA each week for a one-stop review of the week's compliance and ethics highlights. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. In this episode, we take a deep dive into the FinCEN papers. We take a look at data analytics tools for compliance as reported by Dylan Tokar in the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Journal. Mary Shirley asks, what makes a great woman in compliance? Consider, what does do more with less mean for compliance? What are the seven sins of ESG management? What is the largest AML case in Hong Kong, and why is it resonating literally across the globe? We had an FCPA enforcement action this week, and we consider why boards of directors need a separate compliance program. This podcast, webinars, and much more on This Week in FCPA. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network, a proud member of C-Street Radio. Thanks so much for listening. Tom Fox, back again with Mr. Monitors himself, Jay Rosen, for this week in FCPA, episode 223 for the week ending, September 25th, 2020, the FinCEN Papers Edition. As the ICIJ releases some 2,100 SARs directly from FinCEN detailing over $2 trillion in illegal banking activity, the fires in California, Oregon, and Washington have finally abated. And Jay and I are back to talk about some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories. What say you, Jay? I say, when are we going back to the movie theater, Tom? Never. Okay, then let's FinCEN. FinCEN. So the story of the week, Jay, I think is the FinCEN papers. Uh, We've linked to multiple articles, some in compliance, some uh, more traditional uh, journalistic articles, but this was huge. Um, so we have 2,100 SARs, which apparently FinCEN has millions. And in those 2,100, there were over $2 trillion in illegal transactions by banks. Unsurprising, leading the pack with $1.3 trillion alone was Deutsche Bank. But there's multiple other banks uh, involved in this. And what all of that means, Jay, is that... Um, Banks are not engaging in the fight against uh, uh, money laundering. The banks included J.P. Morgan Chase, Citigroup, Bank of America, HSBC, Standard Chartered. HSBC was found to have allowed a Ponzi scheme in uh, one of its um, SARs. The um, I've cited to uh, several articles from Compliance Week. Unfortunately, they're behind a firewall, so you don't have a subscription TS, and I'm sorry. But uh, it really puts... Uh, the banks in a bad light. Uh, there's obviously a be- breach of trust from the release of these documents, but you have to put it all off on FinCEN for l- literally doing nothing with these. FinCEN had a press release before the documents were released saying, well, this is national security and don't release these, blah, blah, blah. But it really shows that um, compliance, for the most part in these banks, did their job, but they were overruled by the business 
uh, units. Uh, banks continue to flout the law. And if there is a change in administration and certainly a change in the Senate, I think uh, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders have already said they're going to use this to uh, pass through new AML laws. But you just have to wonder, you know, where was FinCEN in all this? Uh, why were banks allowed literally $2 trillion in illegal activity? And this is just in 2100 uh, SARs. So a very black eye day for FinCEN, a very black eye day for the banks listed in this. Uh, compliance doesn't look good because they are not uh, eviscerated, Jay. I think they're completely disemboweled by these banks uh, for actually doing anything. Matt, Matt Kelly, of course, uh, weighed in on radical compliance, and he and I took a look at it on compliance into the weeds. But to me, this is one of the biggest stories around. And if there is a regime change uh, in Congress, I think we can probably look forward to significant uh, banking reform with banks really leading the way on um, causing their uh, whatever regulatory schemes to be put in place because of their own uh, conduct. So next up, we've got something from the Risk and Compliance Journal in the Wall Street Journal from our good friend Dylan Tokar. The article is entitled, Corporate Compliance Programs Hit Refresh with Data Analytics Tools. The slow shift toward data-driven corporate compliance program has a new accelerant, the government. Now companies are scrambling to figure out how to meet the government's latest expectations. The Department of Justice in June instructed its prosecutors to ask companies that come under investigation whether their compliance teams have access to data, if it's being used to monitor for risk and test policies and procedures. Authorities also have shown in recent settlements a willingness to cut penalties for companies that have implemented data analytics or monitoring tools in their compliance programs. The push is incentivizing compliance officers to find ways to access financial and operational data and adapt technology to better screen for risks such as bribery, which can lead to enormous fines if undetected. The market for off-the-shelf solutions also has been slow to develop as companies look for specific tools to suit their risk profiles and compliance needs. Bespoke analytics and monitoring services, meanwhile, can be pricing, and this is a difficult pitch for a corporate function largely viewed as a cost center, especially in the middle of a recession. A Microsoft Corp subsidiary in Hungary last year agreed to pay $25 million after probes by the DOJ and the SEC, found it had used discounts and software licenses to fund bribes intended for foreign officials. During the course of their investigation, Microsoft began building a cutting-edge compliance analytics system that allowed the company to flag risky partners and deals. Authorities acknowledged the company's expanded use of data analytics and transaction monitoring helped the subsidiary secure a lower fine and a more lenient settlement agreement. In another example, drug maker Axion, while rather Alexion, while dealing with a government probe into its compliance in the U- with the U.S. Foreign Corrupt Practices Act began a review of how it manages relationships with doctors, many of whom get its products directly. And the search for the right third-party technology, though, tuned up few options designed with compliance in mind. Due diligence service providers often focus on the initial vetting of a business partner or client, 
but they usually don't provide an easy way for companies to track payments to those parties over time. Alexion eventually chose a product from Lextegrity, a startup founded by Parth Chandra, who used to be at Pfizer and was a compliance officer. He used his background to marry its compliance policies and procedures around healthcare professionals with streamlined approval and workflow. The software creates a cloud-based repository for some of Alexion's most high-value compliance data. In a July settlement with Alexion, the SEC listed revamped healthcare professional engagement and oversight processes as a mitigating factor. The company agreed to pay $21.5 million to resolve the SEC investigation. The Justice Department, meanwhile, dropped its investigation without taking an enforcement action. So it'll be interesting to see if other companies start to implement these tools going forward, knowing that they can get benefits with a more lenient sentence. Uh, Jay, next we have an article by our good friend and colleague, Mary Shirley, over on Corporate Compliance Insights. And she poses the question, what is the makeup of a great woman in compliance? As you know, she and Lisa Fine are co-hosts of the Great Women in Compliance series. Um, They've been doing this uh, almost a couple of years. They have a book coming out in the fall, Great Women in Compliance. And so Mary has been thinking about this a lot, and she distills it down to three key characteristics. Number one, they sent the elevator back down. Um, What that means is they didn't forget where they came uh, from. They were willing to help out those uh, who um, not so much came before them, but are are there after them. And so they were willing to go back down and help others, share their knowledge with others, volunteer, mentor, and make thoughts leadership available. Two, near and dear to my heart, they indulge in lifelong learning. Uh, the great women acknowledge that they certainly have a, a wide variety of knowledge, but they don't stop there. And I think that's a key component of anyone who has really any success as being a lifelong learner. And then three, they know their worth. And I don't suppose humility is something that men, chief compliance officers, male chief compliance officer might think about. But Mary found that humility is a common thread in the great women in compliance because they assert a quiet confidence that speaks metaphorical values. They're certainly not shy to advocate for themselves or others. They understand that self-care means removing themselves from situation that they do, that does, do not serve them or where they don't have people around, surrounding them who support them. But uh, to be great, give to get, have humility, and celebrate your own unique strength. So, uh, some great words from Mary Shirley, and and I would just say it's beyond just making up a great woman. It's making up really a great person. So thanks, Mary. Good stuff, Mary. Uh, next up is the first of two from the FCPA blog, and we asked the question, what does doing more with less mean for compliance? KPMG's Matthew McFillin and Amanda Rigby take a look. New compliance risks are emerging as a result of COVID-19. With new work patterns patterns inside companies and outside, risks have shifted considerably. Yet many companies are furloughing or reducing staff dedicated to anti-bribery and anti-corruption, often in direct contrast to changing and rising compliance needs. Here's a look at some new risks and ways for compliance leaders to respond by doing more with less. Government agencies across the globe have been temporarily closed due to COVID-19, Companies are experiencing significant delays in obtaining required permits, license, visas, and the like. 
and they may feel dramatically increased pressure to pay facilitation payments to expedite these processes. With travel restrictions in place, companies have reduced or put on hold their in-country audits of distributors and other third parties. These are just two examples of new risks emerging when companies are trimming compliance resources. What then should compliance leaders do to get ahead of the risks? Here's four things to look at. Number one, use data analysis to prioritize your activities. Start using data to identify the riskiest areas where compliance resources should be allocated. Number two, move to remote compliance reviews and investigations. With travel severely restricted, teams need to adopt a remote compliance audit model with sufficient resources allocated to compliance activities across the world. Number three, avoid allowing business pressures to water down compliance requirements. These are challenging times for the commercial side of many business lines. The temptation has increased to modify compliance programs and therefore thereby accelerate growth into new markets or rejuvenate existing markets. But companies should agree to modify compliance processes only when objectively required and justified. And finally, assess the practical impact of COVID-19 on compliance. As part of COVID-19 remediation actions, include questions about the impact of the pandemic on workflow and functions. Ask employees how government closures have impacted them in the company and how they our closures are being dealt with. In today's environment, where companies may be fighting for their survival, the temptations and pressure to stray into the gray area are enormous. This is a time when compliance leaders need to be vigilant, proactive, and most of all, able and willing to transform programs by doing more with less. Compliance alone won't make an organization successful, but non-compliance could potentially break it. Jay, uh, you may not know this, but there are seven deadly sins of ESG management as related by Cosmas Papadopoulos and Rodolfo Arrieo. Uh, sorry for that, butchering your last name, Rodolfo, but they're from FTI Consulting and posting this week in Harvard Law School uh, Forum on Corporate Governments, Governance. Uh, the reason I really wanted to talk about this, Jay, was I think it goes beyond ESG management and really to management, period. But they, of course, focus on ESG. So I'll just go through these and, and really ask the compliance practitioner to think about how these management sins might be uh, uh, in your wheelhouse. So, number one, focusing on ratings only. Um, that's really a paper exercise, which you should try to stay away from. Two, treating ESG solely as a communications effort. Boy, if there was one thing the compliance practitioner could take to heart, that's it. Number three, once again, tying directly to compliance, lack of board and management oversight. Uh, who's watching the store? Four, another key component, disconnect from business strategy. Are you, um, as a compliance officer, tied into your business strategy? Uh, and the next one it ties directly to compliance, a compliance-oriented approach. Some companies present their ESG programs by making references to compliance with rules and regulations regarding environment, labor practices, et cetera. Um, but this really uh, could be a uh, viewed as a negative approach because it appears to be reactive and indicate a reluctance to go beyond. Inconsistencies within the firm. Every uh, compliance practitioner knows this problem. And the same with ESG management. And then seven, lack of assessment and monitoring. Once again, you, Jay, you talked about what the DOJ said around data analytics. The same holds true for compliance and 
or ESG uh, management as well. So a really interesting article. I would encourage everyone to read it, particularly compliance practitioners, and think about how it applies to your compliance program. Next up, our good friend John Rush in his Dipping Through Geometries uh, blog takes a look at the largest anti-money laundering case in Hong Kong history. At a time when the financial sector globally is looking at leading-edge anti-money laundering systems and reg tech tools as a rich area of development, it is important to remember that money launderers continue to succeed in moving vast amounts of criminal proceeds through the global financial system, sometimes with the simplest of laundering techniques. A notable example of this came to light last week in Hong Kong when Hong Kong Customs announced that they had arrested six people, including a family of five and a licensee of a money changer, on money laundering charges in the largest money laundering case in the history. The case allegedly involved a total of more than U.S. $387 million, which is more than $3 billion in Hong Kong dollars. According to Hong Kong Customs, it began with an investigation in 2020 after identifying a money laundering syndicate. The initial investigation found that the family of five involved in the case had opened more than 100 personal bank accounts in various local banks to deal with over $3 billion of local currency. uh, And they've been doing this since 2018 in which 170 million Hong Kong was related to the money changer licensee. The investigation also determined that the background and the financial status of the family member involved were highly incommensurate with the large value transactions in their personal bank accounts. Ultimately, on September 10th of this year, Customs conducted an operation designated Operation Shadow Hunter, in which 30 officers raided four residents and a licensed money changer and arrested the family of five. It also froze $30 million of Hong Kong currency. This case indicates that AML compliance officers need to ensure that their compliance programs continue to address all categories of indicators and not assume that money launderers are no longer using some of the more basic laundering techniques. Jay, next we have our second article from the FCPA blog, Harry Casson breaking the story of the Sergeant Marine FCPA guilty plea, a very rare um, uh, enforcement action where we actually do have a guilty plea. Unfortunately, the uh, settlement resolution documents have not been released, but Harry gave a great summary of uh, the case. The criminal fine was $16.6 million. Uh, the company engaged in bribery and corruption in Venezuela, in uh, Ecuador, and in Brazil from 2010 to 2018. I guess they didn't get the memo in 1977 that the FCPA prevents this. Um, there was an interesting twist that a large number of uh, individuals were uh, charged uh, individually criminally. Daniel Sargent was charged in December 2019. Jose Tomas uh, Menezes, a trader, was charged in August 2018. Luis uh, Eduardo Adrande was charged in September 2017. And additionally, another trader, Roberto Fenicini, uh, was also pled guilty back in uh, 2017. So lots of guilty pleas out of this case, and it's going to be really interesting to take a deep dive into it um, for a company that was just so brazen for so long in an era when you would think, Jay, that companies would not be intentionally engaging in bribery and corruption, but here we have a case where they did. 
And the final story for today, uh, we're going to take a look at good friend Mike Volkov's corruption, crime, and compliance blog. And in it, Mike asked the question, why the board needs, or no, he doesn't ask the question, he shows us why the board needs a separate compliance committee. Words are words, but actions are tangible. In the end, corporate boards and senior management have to act and commit to promote the importance of compliance. Mike Volkarv argues on numerous occasions that a company's most valuable and tangible asset is its ethical culture. Corporate boards still face an uphill challenge in embracing corporate ethics and compliance. Most corporate boards lack the expertise, time, and commitment to conduct meaningful oversight of a compliance program. And most corporate boards do not have anyone on the board who possesses compliance expertise. Even more frustrating is the fact that ethics and compliance is more often than not lumped into the responsibilities of the corporate audit committee. But that does not necessarily extend to compliance programs. The supposed rationale is that compliance is an integral aspect of a company's internal controls. Mike agrees. However, corporate ethics and compliance is more than just internal controls. Ethics and compliance fuels sustainable growth and protects the company's culture, employees' performance, and achievement of financial goals over the long run. To address the issue, corporate boards need to expand their committee charters to include a specific ethics and compliance committee or even a broader risk management committee. A compliance and ethics committee should be chaired by the board member who has compliance experience. A three-member committee would be an effective oversight mechanism and help promote the implementation of an effective ethics and compliance program. Corporate boards are, by their very nature, reluctant to innovate. Resistance to change in the end could be the undoing of a corporate culture and result in scandal or, at a minimum, a weak corporate culture. Change is coming to corporate boards because the old rules of defense and resistance are easy, easy targets for shareholder activists, corporate raiders, and employee challenge. As millennials increase their role and control over corporate cultures, millennials are demanding a new and innovative approach to corporate governance and its objectives. A company's culture is vital to this wave-seeking change. A separate board committee dedicated to compliance is an important first step in that direction. Jay, we had um, some great podcasts this week on the Compliance Podcast Network. We had part three of my four-part series with Deanna Wonquo on the Compliance Life, where she talked about how you build trust as a CCO. Uh, Once again, Deanna is not a lawyer. Uh, She was a QAQC professional at NASA before she stepped into the CCO role. So a very different, interesting background. Over on 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance Program, which of course is sponsored by Affiliated Monitor, so doff of the hat for that. It was really COSO week. And I took a look at the five objectives from the COSO 2013 Internal Controls Framework. On Monday, Objective 1, Tuesday, uh, Tuesday, Objective 2, Wednesday, Objective 3, Thursday, Objective 4, and today on Friday, Objective 5. Uh, 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance Programs on iTunes. So if you want to download them all and just listen to them straight through, it would be a a great treat. Um, So the month of October is just around the corner, and that means Converge 20 will be happening from October 7th through 8th. Tom, do you have any sessions that you'd like to highlight? Well, uh, actually, what I'd like to highlight, Jay, is that we now have over 2,000 registrants. 
uh, for the Converge uh, 2020 conference. This is not the largest virtual conference. I was privileged to be a part of that earlier in August with uh, PodFest Global Expo, but this is going to be the largest compliance virtual conference. And you will, uh, we have mentioned this several times, and we'll say it again. This is a free event. So how much is it? Yeah, free. So free. I'm talking Millie and Michaela can you know check it out. So, <laughs> uh, uh, but it's going to be a great series of presentations, Jay. I've had a podcast series running the month of September on the Converge 20 uh, speakers. We got some great speakers coming, uh, but more importantly, you'll be able to engage in a way that you haven't been able to uh, in any of the other virtual conferences. So uh, I am one I'm looking forward to engaging with now over 2,000 of my fellow compliance practitioners. And, and once again, you can't beat the price uh, so check it out. Great speakers, great engagement, and be a part of the largest virtual compliance conference around. Great. And we've got one more webinar to point out. Tom, can you tell us what's coming up on September 30th? Yeah, K2 Intelligence Finn is going to have a webinar on strategies for surviving offshore regulatory examination. Um, uh, we just linked to registration information in the show notes. So if that topic interests you at all, once again, it is free as well. And I do some work with K2 Intelligence, Finn. They put on a great webinar series, so uh, certainly happy to uh, uh, for you to check that out. Great. So uh, if anyone would like to get in touch with Tom, you can be reached at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. And if you'd like to get in touch with me, I can be reached at the initial J, R-O-S-E-N, at affiliatedmonitors.com. Uh, I guess, Tom, since we've uh, recorded... Uh, last week, um, unfortunately, uh, Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the notorious RBG, uh, passed away. Uh, there's been a lot of tributes and um, memorials to her. Are there any specific stories or anecdotes about RBG that you'd like to share with our listeners? Well, Jay, I'm going to leave this question for you, but I understand it's Within the Jewish faith, it's a, a great tradition that if someone of prominence dies during Rosh Hashanah, they really have a special place in the heart of, uh, of other other members. So uh, maybe you could speak about that. But here's my favorite, uh, our notorious RBG story. She uh, There was a Supreme Court case where a teenage girl was subject to a body search. And this was when she was the only woman on the Supreme Court. And the the men said, well, big deal, you know. All they did was pull her shirt off. You know, she still had her bra on. And uh, RGB pointed out to them, no, that that was one of the most invasive things that could happen to a woman and certainly to a teenage girl, and that it could traumatize them literally for life uh, if, the, if subject to that type of search by a male. And uh, that's the why we need... Diversity. That's why we needed a female voice on the court to point out that very basic thing. You and I probably would not think twice if we were told to take our shirt off for some type of inspection uh, by an appropriate authority. But yet, for a young teenage girl uh, ordered to by a male, uh, it was a completely different ball of wax. And that simple insight changed the entire decision. So you're, you're absolutely right about the tradition, Tom. Uh, during Rosh Hashanah, which is celebrated the New Year, it says that uh, God has a book, and in that book, 
he will inscribe you in the book of life. And if RBG was not going to be able to be inscribed for the book of life in the coming year starting, she got to ride out that last year until the last day of that year. And the tradition says that only the holiest of the people will have that honor. So she passed away as the holiday was beginning at sundown. So you're absolutely right about that. Um, there's just been so many amazing stories that people are relating, um, how she touched them. And, um, you know, unfortunately, uh, we've taken the time to celebrate the woman in her life. And now we've got to get our hands dirty and deal with the politics of it. So uh, I don't even want to touch that, but I would just like us to think good thoughts of her. And uh, hopefully she is up there hanging out with her husband and they're talking about all the decisions that he missed while he's been away. So on be let me just add that uh, my mother called me this weekend and told me she was staying up late because she wanted to watch the PBS tribute to RBG uh, and that she may have disagreed with her politics, but she felt like she was one of the most important women literally in the last 50 years. So that's the kind of impact uh, she had literally uh, across the nation, across genders and across the globe. So on behalf of Tom Fox, the compliance evangelist and the voice of compliance and myself, Jay Rose and Mr. Monitor, We'd like to thank you for joining us for This Week in FCPA, episode 223, for the week ending September 25th, 2020, the FinCEN Papers edition. I'm sure we'll be discussing that more as the weeks and months stretch on. Please be safe. Please be healthy. And if you're fasting over the weekend, may you have an easy fast and may you be inscribed in the Book of Life. Fox at tfoxlaw.com. We also got a new really cool app on the Compliance Podcast Network website where you can leave a voicemail or a message if you'd like to ask us a question or have a topic you'd like us to consider. I hope you'll join us again next week when Jay and I look at some of the top compliance and ethics stories for the week that is to become. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks again for listening, and we look forward to visiting with you again. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.